Okay, while the uh, buckets are going round, if you've got a Bible, you might want to be turning to John chapter 12, which is where we're going to be in a moment. Give me a moment to find it as well. In a moment, we're going to read from verse 12 in John chapter 12, but you can have that ready. If you haven't got a Bible with you, the word should appear on the screen behind me as well, so you can follow along there if you want to. But today, as you might be aware, in many, uh, in many churches up and down the country, around the world, in fact, and maybe, maybe different for in particular cultures, they'll be celebrating Palm Sunday. It's a week before the Easter weekend... It's a week before the events of Good Friday and uh, the crucifixion and then the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And this Sunday, a week before, is known as Palm Sunday for reasons that we will come to see as we look at the passage we're going to read today. But the, the event that is marked by Palm Sunday is an event that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's an event that's seen as a key moment. It marks the start of the, the last week before the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's a big moment as we ask the question, who really is Jesus? Who is he? Who is this man? Who is this guy who's been touring around this small nation in the Middle East for three years or so, before that, doing all sorts of miracles and teaching the people, who is he? In a moment, we're going to read John chapter 12 and verse 12 onwards. But just to put the context of where we're at, just before this, in John's gospel, we see Jesus has heard that his friend Lazarus has died. He hears that he's sick and he doesn't go straight away. He, He hears that there's there's problems with Lazarus and eventually he hears, when he arrives, he hears Lazarus has died. Jesus is on this general direction. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem. And then Lazarus dies. Jesus is there. He's comforting Mary and Martha. He's telling them, wait, you're going to see something here. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. And in John chapter 11, we read that Jesus goes to the tomb and he tells them, take the stone away. Really, Jesus, do you want to do that? Lazarus has been there for a little while now. It's not going to be pleasant. But as we, if we know the story, we know Jesus gets them to open the tomb and then he cries out, Lazarus, come out. And out comes Lazarus. Lazarus, raised from the dead. What is going on here? But we see from this story, loads of people have turned up and they're like, wow, who is this man? We believe him. We're going to follow him. But intriguingly, others, the Pharisees and others, we, hear, we read in chapter 11, verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And we see from there in that passage, the Pharisees aren't best pleased. And they're, they're getting desperate. What are we achieving? What's going on here? And we see this renewed and stepped up attempt. We need to get rid of him. We need to get rid of this Jesus. The people might think he's something special, but we need to get rid of him. 
Otherwise, he's just going to cause a lot of problems for us. And so we see, John tells us, Jesus withdraws to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. It's kind of, it's not that far from Jerusalem, maybe 10, 15 miles away. It's on the edge of the desert. And he keeps quiet for some period of time. We don't know how long. And he stays there, he lays low with his disciples. And the chief priests are looking for him and saying, where where is this guy? Let me read as we come into chapter 12. Jesus, having stayed out of the way for a bit, suddenly reappears. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And he had a dinner with Lazarus and his family and other people who gather. And if we read on that story, we'd see that's the story where Mary comes and anoints Jesus with perfume. This is the context of where we're at. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The chief priests are like, we need to get rid of him. Jesus takes himself off for a bit. But now he's reappeared. He's back on the scene. He's come to Bethany just outside Jerusalem. He's come to Lazarus' house. And he's been anointed with perfume by Mary. So let's read. This is where we're at. The chief priests aren't particularly happy about this either. In fact, they suddenly decide, not only do we want to kill Jesus, we want to kill Lazarus as well, because he's stirring up all this trouble. So let's go for it. John chapter 12 and verse 12. The next day, so the next day after that, he's been at Bethany the day before. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. We come to this event in John's Gospel. I've heard the whole general direction for Jesus. He's been coming, heading to Jerusalem now. Well, here he is arriving. He's arriving in Jerusalem and it's Passover time. We see that at the beginning of chapter 12. It's six days before the Passover. They're, they're coming, they're ready for the Passover feast. We see Jesus comes and he enters the city. We see this incredible sight where he's welcomed by this great crowd of people. As we stand from our perspective, we know this is where Jesus is heading. Jesus is heading to the cross. As we look at this passage, we, ask, we can ask ourselves this question, as I've already said at the outset. Who is Jesus, really? And in this passage, we can observe three different perspectives. We see the crowd, 
and the disciples with them, or the, the crowd with the disciples, cheering for Jesus. We see the Pharisees plotting against Jesus, the troublemaker. And finally, we'll see Jesus himself. That's what we're going to do today as we look through these verses. So we look through this wonderful event that happened. So let's look at the crowd first. What do we read? The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival, the great crowd that have turned up for the Passover, these, these great numbers of people who were in Jerusalem, they heard that Jesus was on his way. And they took palm branches and they went out to meet him. And they shout out. You can imagine this scene. In fact, it's really apt that this morning, the half marathon's going on down the road. So I spent a good amount of time... Well, no, I didn't spend a good amount of time. I spent about 10 minutes down at the bottom of the road, wandering along, seeing the crowds lining the streets. There's thousands of people running. And this, the crowds are out lining the streets, cheering on the runners, welcoming them, saying, well done, you're doing a great job. You're doing well. They're waving their arms and they're clapping and they're doing all these things. Well, imagine this scene. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And there's this crowd who come out of the city. And as we read in the other different Gospels, there's a crowd coming with Jesus. There's a crowd coming behind. There's a crowd coming out of the city. And they're waving palm branches. And as we read in the other Gospels, they're taking off their cloaks and getting tangled up in microphones. No, they didn't have microphones. They're taking off their cloaks and they're laying them on the ground. They're laying the palm branches down on the ground and they're, they're providing this almost like this red carpet for Jesus. This looks wonderful, this red carpet, doesn't it? It's, it's going to be in his way as he comes along, as he walks, as he comes into Jerusalem. First walking, and then as we read later, riding on a donkey. Probably shouldn't have put that there. Anyway, I'll stand in my coat for the whole time, it's fine. But there's this big crowd, and they are excited. Clamouring around. And you see, if you look to the crowd down... Uh, on the streets in Sheffield. Many of them, they're just, they're just excited to be there, seeing all these different runners going along. But you see many of them, and you suddenly, suddenly they get very excited because they see the one person they're longing to see. Oh, there, there they are. Well done. Keep going. Then loads of other people go by. Oh, there's another friend. Well done. Keep going. This crowd has its eyes on one person. There's not thousands of runners coming. There's loads of people coming to Jerusalem, but this crowd has its eyes on one thing, on one person, on Jesus. There's not thousands of runners coming. It's just him. Jesus is their focus. They're waving their palm branches. They're laying them on the ground. They're laying their cloaks on the ground. And they're shouting, Hosanna. Word that meant save, bring salvation. But in many ways, may have just been a great shout of praise. Yes, God! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. We hear they're shouting, all these shouts of praise. Luke adds that they cry out, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark adds that they cry out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Matthew also adds, 
Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. This crowd is excited. They're lifting up a great shout of praise, using the words, as we've just, these words, some of them come from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. They're welcoming Jesus to the city. Welcoming Jesus as a king. Hosanna. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the son of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our, uh, of our father David. They're excited because they see something. Jesus is coming. The king is coming. The Messiah is coming. This is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is here. Jesus the king is entering Jerusalem, the city of the king. The place of David's throne. Here he is. Here's Jesus. There's this massive sense. They're rejoicing. They're welcoming him because they know he is someone special. He's the one we've been awaiting for. He's the Messiah. He's the king. But what kind of king are they expecting? Do the crowd, and even as we read in verse 16, do the disciples really understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do? They spread their palm branches down and they wave them in the air and they spread their cloaks on the ground welcoming him. It's the sense that they're welcoming a conqueror, a deliverer, a revolutionary, the one who would set them free. Well, it's all true. But the one who set them free, Hosanna, save us from the Romans. From these guys who've just messed everything up in Israel. We need to kick them out so that we can be free. And we see they're praising him as a great miracle worker. We see that in John, in, in verse 17, the crowd that was with them when he caught called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead. They're continuing to spread the word. People are, people are excited. Many people, because they'd heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. Luke adds that uh, in Luke 19, verse 37, the crowd explicitly were praising him for all the miracles they had seen. The crowd, they see Jesus, this great miracle worker, this great, wonderful guy who's been teaching all this stuff, who's been doing all these things, and now has arrived. They've got their ideas about what he is meant to do. They've got their ideas about what they think, what is this king going to be like? He's arriving in the city to take his place. He's going to get rid of everyone who's in the way and he's going to establish his throne here. You see, that's what seems to be in the crowd's mind. Yes, this is Jesus, but this is what Jesus needs to do, isn't it? You see, the crowd are right to praise Jesus. The crowd are right to lift him up. They're right to welcome him. But do they really understand what he's coming to do? It's so easy uh, for us. It's so easy for them to slip into seeing Jesus as, and molding him in our, the image that we want to see him. Jesus, of course, you're the great miracle worker. So now I know I can ask you and you can do what I want. You can do what I need you to do. It's easy to slip into seeing Jesus as being the one with the magic wand or the one who just steps in and gives us 
gives me what I want, what I think I need. It's easy for us to resort to praying like that. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Now here's what I need. Not wrong to offer our requests and offer our thanks. We rightly praise God, and the people are rightly praising God and praising Jesus for what he has done. But we can't slip to thinking that Jesus is some kind of fairy godmother who will do exactly what we think is right. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Begins, look at the relationship we have. You're our Father. May your name be praised for who you are, for who you are, Lord. You see, the crowd see Jesus and they think, this is Messiah coming. We know what Messiah needs to be. Jesus, that's what you're going to be, isn't it? Come, let's make you king. We've already heard earlier in John's Gospel that uh, they recognize him as the promised prophet. In John chapter 6 and verse 15, he's just fed the 5,000. And in John uh, chapter 6 and verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. But Jesus knows what they're thinking. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, Jesus knows that's not the plan, guys. He withdraws to a mountain by himself. You see, the crowd are rightly praising him. But they see a vision of Jesus that's what they want him to be. They've not quite got it right. Do they really see who he is? They praise him for the miracles. They praise him as a great man, a great teacher. teacher. Many, indeed, are recognizing him as the promised Messiah. But do they understand fully what the Messiah must do? Even as they lift their voices with the words of Psalm 118, verse 25, as we said, that's what they're crying out. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do they even manage to keep in mind the words and what they're hinting at just before that in Psalm 118, verse 22? It's the stone the builders rejected who's come to become the cornerstone. Do they understand what Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to do? For us, it's so easy to see the answer that we think fits. This is the situation we're facing, God. This is the situation that's here, and we know you're powerful and you love us and you're mighty, so surely this is what you must want to do. This is what we need. The people saying, this is what we need. We need saving from Rome. But Jesus is bigger than that. Jesus isn't the God who comes to do what we think is right. God's got a big plan. And as Debbie was interpreting earlier, he's the God in the delays. He's the God in the waiting. He's the God who knows exactly what needs to happen when. He's the God who knows the bigger picture. And the truth, they didn't need saving from Rome. They needed saving from their sins. That's what Jesus has come to do. 
So the crowd, their conclusion is this. Welcome Jesus, he's the king. Surely he's going to sort everything out now. But we also see the Pharisees here. Only briefly, verse 19. The Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. You see, we catch a glimpse here that not everyone is welcoming Jesus. This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I'm going to stop standing on my coat. It's not getting us anywhere. We see after Lazarus is killed in chapter 11, the leaders are looking to arrest him. They're afraid of his popularity. They're afraid of what the Romans will do. We can read that uh, in uh, John chapter 11 and verse 47. After these people have come from Lazarus's tomb, they've come to report to the Pharisees. We see in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And we'll see later what Caiaphas goes on to say uh, after that. This is getting us nowhere. The leaders here, they've, they're not accepting Jesus like the crowd does. They've totally rejected him. But now they're afraid. Now they are so fearful. He's getting popular. What's going to happen? What, what will happen if he gets popular? Maybe he will start an uprising. Maybe, maybe the Romans will just think, well, who's this guy with all these people following him? What, what's the point of you guys now? What's the point of the Pharisees and the religious leaders? All, all you Jews are following Jesus, so we don't need you. Pharisees are afraid. The chief priests and the leaders are afraid. What will the Romans do? We see at the end of chapter 11, they're looking for him. They're thinking, we need to deal with him. We need to get rid of him. But he's disappeared. And now, here he is, but he's with this massive, rapturous crowd, this crowd who love him. What are we going to do? We can't just march in the middle of that and take him away. This is getting us nowhere. And you see us, we get to chapter 12, verse 19. Their desperation is increasing. It's still getting us nowhere. And now look how the whole world has gone after him. The thing that they were fearful of appears to be happening. You see, where the crowd welcome him, whilst perhaps misunderstanding exactly who he is as Messiah, the Pharisees reject him outright. They're blind to the evidence they've seen. You see, the other gospel writers, particularly Luke, they're much more clear on this. In the middle of everything, the crowd are crying out, Hosanna! And the Pharisees, in Luke 19, verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They shouldn't be saying this, should they? They don't believe he is who the crowd say he is. We see, even back in John 9, in verse 19, 
Jesus has healed a man born blind and the Pharisees are investigating what's going on here. And they call in his parents just to check he was actually a guy who was born blind. And in John 9 verse 19, is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. But it says this, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. They've totally rejected him. This Jesus, we don't think he is who he says he is. We don't think he is who the crowd think he is. We need to get rid of him. He's just a troublemaker. Fulfilling, as John has started his gospel, Jesus came unto his own, but his own didn't receive him. John 1 verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, yet his own did not receive him. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have just rejected him. But now they're at this place. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world's gone after him. What a statement. The whole world. See the ironic truth. Yes, Jesus is the king for the whole world. Jesus is the one who's come to save all who will believe. And yet we see this is a desperate statement. They're not even right about it at the time. Yes, there's a big crowd cheering Hosanna with the disciples. And yet in a few short days, that crowd will be replaced by another crowd joining the Pharisees and the religious, religious leaders shouting, crucify. The Pharisees, they see Jesus and they see the crowd and although they don't welcome him or accept him as king, perhaps to some degree they share the crowd's conclusion of what Jesus has come to do. They're looking for a a revolutionary leader. Perhaps he is the one who's going to try and be this revolutionary leader. What are we going to do about him? He's going to cause problems with the Romans. He's going to cause problems for us and our position is going to be messed up. You see, the Pharisees, they see Jesus and they don't believe him and they respond in fear. You see, the Pharisees, they see the situation. This is so easy for us to do. They see the situation and all they can see is what is going to happen to us? What's going to happen? Back in chapter 11, verse 48, again, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. What will happen to us? If this carries on, if if he's allowed to keep going, if Jesus is allowed to have his way, what's going to happen to us? They act out of fear. They don't believe him and they act out of fear. They don't see that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king who we can trust with everything. They've rejected him. And so therefore they are afraid. So easy for us as we see different situations. What will happen to us? Jesus, if I take this step, what's going to happen to me? 
But we see, unlike the Pharisees, the answer is to trust him. Trust him with everything. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is the one who we can trust. You see, the Pharisees' conclusion in their fear is, we need rid of him. He needs to die. Who is Jesus? He's a troublemaker who we need to get rid of. Let's look at what Caiaphas said in chapter 11, verse 49. So the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're saying, if we let him go on like this, then, the, then everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come. They'll take away both our temple and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And we look at it and we can see and we go, Caiaphas, what you say is actually so true, and yet you've got it so wrong. Yes, here is Jesus. He's the one who is going to die. Yes, for the Jewish nation, but not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring Jew and Gentile and everyone who believes in his name together to be one new man in Christ. And yet your response is, we need to kill him. So the Pharisees' conclusion is he must die. The crowd welcoming a king the Pharisees looking to get rid of a troublemaker. But then we come to Jesus. Jesus is obviously in this passage too. And we see the truth of who he is as we look at him. In fact, John doesn't say an awful lot about Jesus in this passage. He tells us that Jesus is on his way. But then all he says in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. That's it. This is what Jesus does in this passage. You see, obviously, if we're familiar with the story, the other Gospels obviously spell this out in a lot more detail. Jesus, as he's approaching the city, sends some of his disciples into a neighboring village and says, go and get, you'll find a a colt, a, don- a young donkey, and the, the mother of the, the mother donkey. Two donkeys. There we are, young one, grown up one. Bring them to me. If anyone challenges you, tell them the Lord needs it. And they bring the donkey. They bring the, the young donkey that's never been ridden. You see, John's content just to say this Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. He doesn't go into the details of that story. It's almost like saying, that's a great story. It's great truth about what Jesus has done. But actually, this is the focus I want to draw. John comes right to the point. Jesus gets on a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. I think, so? You see, John's focus is very simply on this deliberate act of Jesus... I'm riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
and the significance of it. What does John go on to say? Like the other gospel writers, he quotes this, As it is written, don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The crowd may see a possible revolutionary leader, the king who's going to kick out the Romans. The Pharisees may see a big problem that needs to be dealt with, but Jesus is in no doubt about who he is. Jesus is in no doubt about what he's doing and where he is headed. John draws our attention just to this simple act by which Jesus is saying, this is who I am. I am the Messiah who has come. I am the King. Jerusalem, don't be afraid. Your King has come riding on a donkey. I am the King, the one who fulfills all the prophecies. Yes, this one from Zechariah chapter 9. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See your King's coming seated on a donkey's colt. Let's read from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, Zechariah says, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus in making this deliberate act, he's saying to the people, if you know the scriptures, if you know what Zechariah has said, you know what I'm doing. You can see what I'm doing. As John tells us, look, see, this is what he's doing it for. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus is saying for anyone who has ears to hear, for anyone who has eyes to see, I'm here, the promised Messiah, the king, the one who all the prophets spoke of. But not a king on a war horse coming to start a military revolution. But the promised king of Zechariah chapter 9, the one who comes gentle and lowly, riding on a donkey. The prince of peace who brings salvation, but not with the sword of war to deal with Rome. Gentle and riding on a donkey. In fact, as Zechariah goes on to say, coming to remove the war horses of Ephraim and Jerusalem, coming to proclaim peace to the nations, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. David's son, whose throne will never end. The one who all the prophets speak of, who will rule over all. The Messiah come to save from sin. You see, this is the right at the heart of this passage. This very simple words, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. But in doing so, Jesus is saying something massive. I am the one who was promised. I am the one who the prophets all speak of. The Messiah come to save you from your sins. If we zoom out for a moment in John's Gospel, we see what we see this wonderful event, Jesus victoriously coming into Jerusalem. But what's just happened? Mary's anointed him at, Beth, at Bethany. What does Jesus say in chapter 11 and verse 7 as Mary's done this thing and Judas has reacted? He says, what is going on here? This should, this, what a waste of money. This should have been sold and given to the poor. 
Jesus says this, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. You see, right before this, Jesus is talking what? about what? About his death. Straight afterwards in John's Gospel, some Greeks come who want to speak to him. They come to Philip, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. We want to see Jesus. And they go into him. And Jesus says this in, in chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus, again, he's talking, I'm about to be glorified, but do you see how? A, single, a seed needs to fall into the ground and die, and then the fruit that comes. Flanking this glorious thing, Jesus coming in as king, but do you know how this is going to happen? Jesus gets, as he gets on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem as the king, the Messiah who's heading to his coronation, he is showing us, I am the one who was promised. He's showing us that like Isaiah said, he is the forever king of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse, uh, verse 6. Wonderful words will be familiar from, from the Christmas story. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. He is that king. But as he knows so clearly, the road to this leads to the cross. The king who Isaiah talked of in Isaiah 9 is also the suffering servant that he talked about in Isaiah 53. And verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. As Jesus does this, he's declaring this. I am the one who was promised. But you see, the one who was promised, if you really see, if you really understand, if you really look back at the scriptures, you understand the one who was promised was not the one who's going to march into Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. I've come to do something far deeper and bigger and greater. See Jerusalem, your king comes, humble and lowly, riding on a donkey. This is me, says Jesus. You see, this is the conclusion. The crowd see, Jesus has come. Maybe this is the day. 
The Romans will be dealt with. The Pharisees see, no, no, no. He's a troublemaker that needs to die. Well, here's the truth as Jesus lays it out. I am the king who was promised. I am the Messiah who was promised. I am the one you've been waiting for. But this is how it has to be. I am on my way to be glorified and crowned. I am riding into Jerusalem for my coronation. It's a coronation that will be painful. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried. But then I'm going to be exalted to the highest place. You see, in one way, the crowd and the Pharisees have both got it right and they've both got it wrong. He is the king, as the crowd acknowledge. And he does have to die, as the Pharisees have concluded. Yet this is the truth. This is Jesus. Let's close for reading Philippians chapter 2. Wonderful passage. It's Paul saying, this is the attitude that you should have, but focuses in on who Jesus is. Christ Jesus, who being, sorry, chapter 2, verse 5. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the name above all names who brings salvation for all who will believe. So my encouragement to us today, let's recognise him for who he really is. Let's not try and mould him into our own image, but understand he is the King on the throne. Let's accept him. And trust him in everything, not rejecting him and fearfully wondering what we need to do like the Pharisees. Recognize him, worship him, come to him. He is a glorious saviour. Amen.